Hi listeners, it's Lucy. Please don't scroll ahead. This is a very quick message, I promise, to ask a very easy favour. At the end of each episode, as the credits roll, you'll hear a request from us to rate and review the show. Now, for those of you that are awesome podcast listeners rather than podcast makers, you might actually have no idea what a huge difference those things make. A significant factor in the visibility of a podcast on almost all listening platforms is down to the number and quality of ratings and subscriptions. So, if you are one of our dedicated listeners, hi, I know some of you as far away as Australia, so thanks. If you're currently not driving your car or changing a baby's nappy, can you please just look down at your phone right now as I'm talking and hit subscribe and five-star rating? Both of them are on the homepage of the show and they are both only a one-click job. But oh my God, what a lot of joy and gratitude I would feel at those one clicks. It makes such a difference to the show's potential to keep going. Now, enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Hi, Lucy Eaton here, host of Hear Me Out. We've had lots of requests from our amazing listeners asking how they can support the show. So before we invite today's special guest on, I wanted to let you know that we are officially now on Patreon. This means that you can invest in the channel monthly, and in return you get all kinds of perks from bonus footage to having your own questions put to our starry guests. Just head to our page on patreon.com slash podhearmeout. We've popped the link in the show notes below, and we would love to have you join the family. You're about to hear a brief conversation with an incredible actor. Part autobiographical journey, part literary analysis, and part late-night chat in the theatre bar, this is Hear Me Out, and I'm your host, Lucy Eaton. Please welcome to the stage, Giles Torreira. I'm going to launch in, maybe not on the intellectual end, but I'm just going to ask you what it felt like when you won your Olivier. <laughs> is there an intellectual end? Well, the Hamlet bit that we're going to get onto is a bit of an intellectual end, but, you know, I'd rather start with the Starry Awards moments. <laughs> what did it feel like? It was, it was a kind of... It was a blur, basically. Mm. I have a nephew, and my nephew loves to watch it. If ever I go around to the house, he'll put it on YouTube. <laughs> And watching it, it does. I can't match up with my my memory of the of the event itself. So it's like watching someone else. Yeah. Because the thing itself was just a sort of out of body experience. The day itself was fun because we were performing. Of course, yes. So we had to be there from first thing in the morning and sound checking and rehearsing and stuff. And so it's kind of busy day. And then you didn't really have time to think about the thing. So the day is my memory of the thing is having lots of fun at the Albert Hall and seeing other casts and other companies and. And then it was like, oh, shit, it's my go. How much did winning it factor on your radar? Did you sort of feel like, look, I got the role of Aaron Burr. It's like a dream role, a dream job. Sort of nothing can top this. Or when you got nominated and you knew it was a possibility, were you like, wow, this would be the icing on the cake? Because I hadn't won anything before or even actually been nominated for that, Scandalous. I didn't have any. <laughs> I didn't have anything to compare it to. So the idea of winning was. I guess. I guess what people mean when they say, you know, they sort of get up and go, I had no idea this was going to happen, and I never th- thought in a million years this would happen. You kind of think about it on paper, but the yeah. actual, the actuality of it, you d- you can't have any frame of reference for. So mm-hmm. I, I wasn't. I, I wasn't thinking about the possibility of winning at all because it was just. I have no idea what that would mean or be or. Mm. 
So I was going to ask this much later, but seeing as we've just had a lovely little impromptu chat about Hamilton, before we move on to The Bard, yeah. what is your incredible sounding book that's coming out this summer? The book I've got coming out is called Hamilton and Me. And it's essentially a, a work journal that I kept during the production of Hamilton. So the process of getting the job was, was, was quite a long one. It was like a year and a half. God. From my first audition to the start of rehearsals, which even now seems crazy, to, but it was a, it was a year and a half. Um, six months of auditioning, and I was auditioned and cast very early on. So then they still had to cast everyone else. and So that was like a year. And then the start of our rehearsals got put back by, I think, a month or so. Uh, so the whole process was quite a long process. But anyway, at the beginning of um, auditioning, in fact, no, it was once I got the job. <laughs> once I got the job, I started keeping a, a journal, mm. which I usually do in rehearsals. I usually keep, uh, especially if I'm travelling anywhere or if the job is touring, you know, internationally or whatever, and I'm going to interesting places and stuff, I usually keep a, a journal. Like a holiday diary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so with Hamilton, I did. I started, I, I started keeping my journal from the beginning of rehearsals and then kept it all the way through the year. So the book is essentially the first bit of it, which is auditioning, getting the job, preparing for the role, and then all of previews, which is quite a long preview period, mm-hmm. and then up until opening. Right. So I kept that and I was planning another... I had another idea for a book, which was a book for young actors and students just some of the things that I've learned and sort of picked up along the way, which might be useful mm. to other people starting out in the industry. So during lockdown, I got to a bit where I was thinking about something that happened in Hamilton. So I was like, oh, let me just um, reference the diary that I had, which is... <laughs> Somewhere. It's on my desk. And then I, so I started looking at it, and then having had a bit of time away from it, so I left Hamilton now, what, two years ago? Mm. Having had a bit of distance from it, it just seemed really interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> and because it was so... The experience of Hamilton was so quick and there was so much to do and so much to think about and so much to try and remember and and balancing that with then, once we started to perform, uh, the energy that came from the audience, the expectation that came yeah. from the audience and the people that coming to see it and once it was out in the world and people were talking about it in the news and stuff, it was a lot. So my experience of writing it down was very, very quick. Mm. Um, because we always had to go and rehearse some other number, <laughs> all of which I was in. There's 50 songs. Aaron in the Burr is there all, all the time. All the time. <laughs> which actually you get a lot of in the diary because, well, as you know, as an actor, you kind of have your scene and then you kind of do that and then you go away and you're not in the scene after lunch. So you can, yeah. you can go away and kind of process what you're doing and then, or you're not in the scene next morning. So you have these gaps where you can kind of process and solidify things, which if you're on every song, you don't have the time to do that. Anyway, so all that to say, because it was so such a whirlwind experience, once I could take a look at it from a slight distance, mm. um, it, I just found it really interesting. It was almost like it was someone else's experience. Mm. Or, you know, you look back and you go, oh, I'd forgotten that moment. So if I were in an interview and having to talk to you about Hamilton, I might have completely forgotten that. I would never have mentioned that. And when you look at it, you go, oh, of course, yeah, of course, <laughs> that happened. I felt that, or that tiny yeah. detail. And part part of it was... I didn't necessarily write it to be published. Uh, I just wrote it for, for my own process. But it's it's sort of useful to to be as unfiltered as possible 
in doing it. Just literally write. And also there just wasn't time. There wasn't time. To, you know, I'd write it like maybe a little bit on a tea break. And also I'm writing down like what my moves are and what, what I'm supposed to be doing. It's a, note, it's, a, it's a note thing. So you kind of just grab it where you can or on the, on the train on the way home or, mm. you know. So it was very much just to put down what I what I was experiencing and what I was supposed to be doing, and but then having taken a step back during this uh, summer, I found it quite interesting. So I showed it to my agent, and um, she said, "Oh, we should do this. Never mind the other. Book. Never mind the other book. This is the book you young should actors do. don't need your tips, Giles. We just want the Hamilton journals." <laughs> well, she she said it's kind of all in there because it's it. Yeah, she said everything you're trying to do with this other book is actually in that process because you're actually working on something at the time so why don't you just let's do that so she had some conversations and um we found a great publisher and so yeah i hope people can enjoy it and find it useful so on to or backwards to perhaps shakespeare from Lin-Manuel Miranda to Willie Shacks you actually wanted to talk about a lost speech from Hamlet so what is it whose speech is it where was it lost and who found it Tell me everything. I'm not sure who I'm not sure who told me about it now. See, this is my memory again. I did a production of Hamlet at the National, I want to say maybe 2010. Rory Kinnear was Hamlet. Yeah. Claire Higgins was there was a mate is an amazing cast. Claire Higgins was Gertrude. Mm. Patrick Malahide was Claudius. Um, Ruth Neger was Ophelia. It was like an amazing, amazing company. Um, and I was uh, I was Horatio. Mm. Anyway, going into this production, I discovered that in one of the in one of the quartos, there is a scene which takes place between Horatio and Gertrude when Hamlet has been sent off to England mm. with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yes, everyone is like he's a hundred percent mad. He's great, great. Yeah, let's get him. Yeah. Let's get him killed. So England. King says, right, he's going to go off to England and he sends letters which say that Hamlet um, should be killed once he gets to, once he gets to England. Mm-hmm. Hamlet finds mm-hmm. out, River switches it and comes back. Before he comes back, there is a scene in one of the quartos between Horatio and Gertrude where, <laughs> where and I was like dumbfounded by this. I was like, what the hell is this? Where, because this does not happen. There is no scene between Gertrude and the folio. There's no scene between Gertrude and Horatio. And he says, listen, he tells her crucially about Claudius. He tells her about Hamlet's murder sentence and that it's from Claudius. So for me, it was really fascinating because it means that Gertrude goes into the whole end of the play knowing or at least suspecting that Claudius is, is, is what he is. Yeah. In rehearsals, I told this to... Claire Higgins, who was, yeah. <laughs> who was playing Gertrude. And she's, this is fucking brilliant. Brilliant, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. We've got to do it. Show it to me. So I sent it to her. Because it's amazing for her. It has a whole different energy oh, to the end of the play it makes so much her. sense of, of stuff. Right. Yeah. And so she said, okay, leave it to me. I'm going to ask Nick. I'm going to tell Nick we have to put this in. And she, she asked Nick and he said, absolutely not. <laughs> so, <laughs> So what a never, party pooper! I know we never got to do it, but it was amazing. It was amazing because I've never—I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I'd never heard of this this moment. No, which never in a million play. years. No. And it's just fascinating because obviously the quartos are different things, and they are 
sort of bootleg versions and that come from different places. And stuff. Yeah, I was about to say, can you explain that for, for anyone who doesn't understand the difference between quarto and folio? Oh, yeah, yeah, very good. So if you go and go to a bookshop now and get any copy of a Shakespeare play, you're going to get Hamlet, you'll generally be, well, you will be reading the play as it was published in the first folio, which is two of Shakespeare's contemporaries who were in his company that performed all these plays, mm-hmm. went around after his death, John Hemmings and Henry Condell, and they after Shakespeare's death, they went around and found all of the versions of the plays because the plays weren't published in Shakespeare's lifetime. Mm. The actors had them, the theatre would have them, and then that was it. So they didn't exist. You couldn't buy the play. What you could do is people would go around the theatres like with the equivalent of a dictaphone or an iPhone, and they would transcribe as the play was happening. They'd write down what the play was, like a bootleg version. Those are called the quartos, because they would publish them in these huge sheets of paper that would be folded in four somehow. So you could buy those in Shakespeare's day, but they were kind of bastardised versions and very inaccurate versions, and you can, you can see them in this version that I've got. If you know, take a famous speech like to be or not to be, it's yeah. kind of crazy because it kind of comes in and out of what we actually know the play is. <laughs> and you can tell the bits where the person has maybe just run out of and then just gone home afterwards and kind of just made it up a little bit, sort of filled in the gap. He said something about suicide. He said something about suicide. Like, to be or not to be, let me try and find... Let me just try and find... Uh, oh, yeah, please. To be or not to be, because it's hilarious. OK, here's to be or not to be. From the quarto <laughs> of, of Hamlet. To be or not to be... Aye, there's the point. <laughs> to die, to sleep, is that all? I all. Not to sleep, to dream. I merry, there it goes. For in that dream of death, when we wake up, and born before an everlasting judge, from whence no passenger ever returned, the undiscovered country whose sight and happy smile and a cursed damned... <laughs> I mean, it's sort of nothing like... That is amazing! And then when you get to the end, which, which makes us rather bear those ills we have than to fly to others we know not of. Oh, this conscience makes cowards of us all. Lady, in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered. And so you lose... Uh, what would it be? Uh, this conscience makes cowards of us all and... What's it called? And what's the last line? And the, Oh, God. Uh, 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 oh, thinking uh, like lose the, the face of action. Lose the name of action. or Lose, lose the name the, of action. Lose, lose like the name that. of action is lost. Yeah. So you can kind of see where someone is... It feels like someone's trying to write very God. quickly along and kind of losing bits. But I didn't understand where a whole scene would come from. It's like, yeah. well, either that scene, the person saw that or they didn't. So maybe it was something that was cut. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was perhaps at one point early on in previews. Or... Oh, yeah, I love the idea that there was a preview where the play was longer, as happens nowadays, and then they were like, oh, we got to lose some shit. Let's just... Yeah. It's, it's interesting to compare. I always like to compare different versions of the plays to see... Because actually they're all different, and editors yeah. do different things with punctuation. and So I find all that stuff really interesting. Mm. You've done Hamlet, haven't you? I haven't done Hamlet. Oh. I don't know how much the role of Ophelia appeals to me. And I'm not yet Gertrude aged. On that note, though, is there something... I mean, you've obviously done a huge amount of Shakespeare. Are there any Shakespeare roles that you are still really keen to do? Yeah, I'd really love to do Richard III. Mm. What is it about Richard? The whole villainy? I guess it it depends, really, also. Like, I've done... I wanted to play Horatio, so I, I asked... I sort of went after that and when I knew they were doing it I went I wrote to Nick and said I'd like to 
be considered for that. Mm. But I, I kind of really had a thing about that role at the time. Mm-hmm. So it, it depends. It's sort of different things at different times, I guess, with Shakespeare. You know, when you're young, everyone's, everyone's about Hamlet. I remember that, you know, carrying, like everyone, you sort of carry it around with you at drama school and kind of, you go, oh, my God. And <laughs> so much of what he goes to kind of speaks to you. And then now... Yeah, it's a, it's a different thing. You come but you know, then you sort of move into, I don't know, Macbeth. I find as well that what appeals to me when I'm looking is sometimes just the the slightly lesser known as well. Like, I almost don't want to have to say the words that everyone already knows. Yeah. I found a speech, a Queen Margaret speech, that's in Henry VI part, I want to say three, because there's like many yes. parts. Yeah. And it's such an incredible speech. And it's basically, I mean, she's just vile. She is just evil personified in it. But she's sort of doing everything she can in this speech to make York totally despair before she murders him. Because in her mind, he's basically a good man. She doesn't want to murder him and send him to heaven because that's a gift. Yeah. She wants to make him despair so that she can yeah. then murder him and send him to hell. Right. And it's such a fascinating psychological exercise and so unknown I sort of think it with your Richard thing you know we don't get Richard very often no and that's the other thing I thought it hadn't been really it's usually a sort of it someone does it and then that becomes the stamp it's one of those parts that no one really touches it for a while <laughs> and and also if it, if it is done it tends to be done as a kind of star vehicle Whereas actually, when I look at the play, it's like a, you need to cast it like an incredible ensemble because, like you say, Margaret's in that, Anne's in that, Elizabeth's in that. Like these yeah. incredible characters, yeah. um, the little princes, the jailers, Clarence, like these amazing characters in it. And if you get a really brilliant ensemble, I think it's a fucking amazing play about, you know, how people in those positions are just cutthroat. They're all, you know, they would all be Richard if they could. Yeah, yes. I think that's the brilliant thing about the play. It's like, it's absolutely bloodthirsty. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. But now you just saying that, you saying that has reminded me, actually the speech I should have done is Constance oh. in uh, King John. Okay. King John, because that I had the same thing that you just explained with, with Margaret, which is, mm. I didn't know King John. I did King John at the Globe. I didn't know King John. I was like, well, that's the one I've never seen. I've never seen it being put on. There's a reason for those things. It's one that yeah. no one ever does. Yeah. So did, looking at this play, and in the middle of this play is an amazing moment, an absolutely amazing moment, which I think is probably one of my favourite moments in all of Shakespeare. I don't know why I didn't think of that. Because <laughs> We'll start over. <laughs> yeah, the, the play I mean, is absolutely incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I was floored by it. The play is about France and England battling over who is going to own the territory, which is kind of all of England, all down the west coast of France, all that tract, right. Brittany, all that thing, right? So they're fighting over that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so they, they have this prince, the young Prince Arthur, who they both try and claim. So both sides are trying to claim him. The, the play starts with this battle, this war, and then mm. they're trying to pull this, pull this prince this way, this way. He's ours. We have the right, we have the right, we have the right, we have the right. And in the end, they actually say, do you know what? Never mind the prince. Let's marry your son and my daughter or your niece, whatever it is. We'll have an arranged marriage and then we'll just jointly rule. At which point, Constance, who's Arthur's mother, the prince's mother, turns up. (laughs) And she just gives it to all of them. She's like, she has a scene where she curses everyone. 
and she turns to King John and says, you promised me this. You said you stick by me this. She turns to Philip, King of France. You're purged because you told me this and you don't understand. And you're here fighting, fighting each other. You don't know what it's like to, to have to battle. I'm a mother. That's my son. I'm here on my own. It's incredible. And she gives it to everyone. Ah. It's incredible. And she like curses everyone and then goes. And from that moment on, the play goes from being... On a, on a massive scale, like physical armies battling, yeah. it shifts, I noticed, to like everyone's internal battle. She curses everyone. Mm. And then from then on, everyone has their own like internal battle. Like, what am I going to do? Which way am I going to go? Which way am I going to go? And I thought that influence in the play is amazing. She just stands there and yeah. blasts one person. everyone. Yeah, one person. It's interesting to, to, to find those things that you're less familiar with. Yeah. We have had such a gorgeous conversation. I feel like it might be time just to hear this lost Horatio speech that no one has ever heard before. (laughs) It says, I'll just read it. Horatio enters with the Queen and he says, Madam, your son is safe arrived in Denmark. This letter I even now received of him. Whereas he writes how he escaped the danger and subtle treason that the King had plotted. Being crossed by the contention of the winds, he found the packet sent to the king of England, wherein he saw himself betrayed to death. As at his next conversion with your grace, he will relate the circumstance in full. And the queen says, then I perceive there's treason in his looks that seemed to sugar all his villainy. So she goes into that final scene with the fencing and she's in a different place completely. I feel like that does happen all the time in Shakespeare. Maybe there are these lost scenes because there's so many. I mean, unfortunately, it is classically the female characters, but it's like Hermione at the end of A Winter's Tale. And in another episode, I'm talking to Maddie Hill and she's talking about when she did Imogen, which was a a version of Cymbeline. And she says of Imogen that in the original version of Cymbeline, Imogen just stops talking. It sort of doesn't make sense Mm. of some of her actions. So there are all these places in Shakespearean plays where I think really necessary and helpful information (laughs) is not really there to help understand why a character suddenly changes tack. People always say there's one in in Macbeth with Lady Macbeth. But Mm. actually, you know, there are instances, as you say, where there are things which have gone or scenes that are not there or that were there. And I think it's really interesting to to not take the, the, the version that you're going to go out into the bookshop and buy as gospel. There are, there's been a whole long history of yeah. these plays being edited and cut and changed. There's instances of, what, what play was it? I think it was like Lear where for like the whole of the 19th century it had a happy ending or something where they sort of, someone does a version God. of it. And then it, that, you know, they, they sort of changed the Victorians because, you know, they didn't want a lot of blood and a lot of sex and violence and stuff. So they changed a lot of the plays. <laughs> so they were like, it's not there. Yeah, it's not there. I mean, even in things like if you take a play which, say, like a late play, mm. which um, was very well documented and probably in the first folio they got very easily. You've still got each editor of each publishing house putting their own editing in, putting their own punctuation mm. in. So it's always good, I think, to go back and rediscover yeah you know you, you find interesting things it's it's uh, it's endlessly fascinating to me all of this stuff giles you are so interesting to talk to about shakespeare <laughs> thank you so much for this <laughs> I, I just dig it and I, I i'm you know i like i'm curious about it so i could talk about it all day but it's, it's always good to um to chat to you anyway. oh well thank you so much lovely this has been great fun hear me out is a lucy eaton productions podcast 
music composed by Tristam Kay, and artwork by Rebecca Bright. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe. And I know it's a mini faff, but if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a rating and a review would mean the world. Finally, you can find us on social media at Pod Hear Me Out, and we're on YouTube, where you can catch visual clips of the show. Right, that's it. Lucy Eaton, exiting stage left. Thank you.